Good morning. This is Emily Joan Elliott, Managing Editor for East Lansing Info. It is January 26, 2021, here with Linda Vale, the Ingham County Health Officer. Thanks for joining us, Linda. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing okay today, Emily. I woke up bright and early, and uh, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, our readers know you, obviously, because you've been influential in making decisions that affect East Lansing during the pandemic. But I was wondering if we could find out a little bit about how you got into public health. What initially made you interested in this field? Well, I'm going to have to tell you that I kind of stumbled in a little accidentally. So um, just backtrack a little bit. I went to um, college in, in Georgia, the University of Georgia, and got mm. a degree in microbiology. Uh, eventually went to graduate school in microbiology, and I was a researcher for many years. Um, so I finished out my career, about 20-year research career, at um, what was originally the Upjohn Company, which is how I got to Michigan. Um, and during that period of time, I kind of had this sense of being in the lab and being very, you know, uh, science has always been my thing, data has always been my thing, but I kind of felt this sense of needing to be somewhere else. Um, you know, part of it was probably being more of an extrovert, not being comfortable in the lab all the time, being ecstatic about the work a lot of the time, but just kind of a little back and forth. So I went back to school and I got a degree um, in what ended up being public administration. Originally, I thought it was going to be public health. And I think I was kind of looking to do one of two things. Um, become kind of a project manager for the company, staying with the company, mm -hmm. or move on to being maybe a health system administrator type person. Um, so I did get that degree and, and was kind of looking around a little bit within the company for some project management positions, interviewed for a couple, did well, but didn't quite get them. And then found myself in 2002 when Pfizer acquired um, what was then Pharmacia, uh, being one of the first people to be laid off. So mm -hmm. I was laid off in July of 2002. Um, I was working in infectious disease genomics at the time. And I had to make some decisions about what to do with my life and my career. I was uh, divorced at the time. I had two kids still living at home. My daughter was finishing her junior year, and my son was 11 years old. And his dad lived across the state um, to continue working in research, which was the only thing I knew how to do and the quickest way to get a job as far as I could think. It would have meant moving to the West Coast or the East Coast or somewhere uh, in order to continue doing research. Although I did look at, you know, like U of M labs and some mm -hmm. of those sorts of things, um, which I was at that point in time overqualified for. So... Um, a position at the Kalamazoo County Health Department opened up. It was the Emergency Preparedness Coordinator position, um, which basically is planning for these kinds of emergencies and mass vaccination clinics. And I decided to apply for it because it kept me in Kalamazoo, which kept my daughter, um, she wouldn't have gone anywhere with me anyway um, for her senior year in high school, rest assured she'd found some way <laughs> to, leave, to stay behind. And it kept me close enough to um, my son's father that he could continue to have that relationship um, that, you know, every every other weekend time with his dad, which was important um, right. to both of them and to me as well. So um, I applied for that job and ultimately got it. So I was unemployed um, 
the end of July 2002, living on unemployment and child support um, until early November when I got the job at Kalamazoo County to be their first emergency preparedness coordinator, um, which gave me, honestly, it was like just enough money to continue paying my bills and to stay exactly where I was without disrupting um, their lives. So I stepped into a public health department really because of that and um, loved it from the beginning, loved the work, loved the people, uh, really felt like I fit um, and had the advantage as the emergency preparedness coordinator of working with divisions all across the department to communicate with them, plan with them, integrate them into large scale plans, those sorts of things. So it gave me a lot of familiarity with the department across the board. Mm -hmm. So how then did you make the transition from Kalamazoo to Ingham County? Well, first, let me say that I started in Kalamazoo County in November 2002, again, right. as an entry-level coordinator and became their health officer by April of 2007. So I was the Kalamazoo County health officer in April 2007, four and a half years after I set foot in a health department for the first time and um, spent about seven years being the health officer there and um, honestly got reached out to by the former health officer here in Ingham County, uh, Dr. Renee Kennedy, to see if I would be interested in applying for the position here as she was uh, resigning to become the CEO of the Michigan Public Health Institute. Um, I, had already, I was actually already a finalist for the health officer position in Charlotte, North Carolina, and in my head, I thought I was going to move south um, as I got closer to retirement, not move to yet another city in Lansing, or excuse me, city in Michigan. So I, I, I kind of had to get my head around that, and uh, Renee twisted my arm a little bit, and I decided to apply. So that is how I got here. You wound up closer to Charlotte than Charlotte. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, but, you know, Renee basically told me, it's like, you know, this department, unlike other health departments, is a federally qualified health center. Um, it has just a lot of things to it that were different from other health departments. So even though we are not the largest county in the state, we are the largest health department in the state. And we have the largest budget of any health department in the state. So moving from Kalamazoo County to Ingham, which was a little bit bigger in terms mm. of the size of the county, because we don't just do public health services as part of Ingham County Health Department, it was a huge jump in terms of responsibility and in terms of the work and some experience with federally qualified health centers as well as public health, which really was an exciting opportunity to um, really expand my career. Sure. Can you explain to our listeners what a federally qualified health center is? Yeah, federally qualified health centers are designated by um, the federal government as basically um, clinics in areas that are underserved. Um, we often refer to them as safety net clinics. So federally qualified health centers like our Forest Community Health Center and other health centers are primary care clinics, um, but we take patients without regard for their ability to pay. So when it mm -hmm. comes to Medicaid, um, uninsured, anybody, um, there are health systems that, that cannot or do not, you know, have the ability to serve those folks because of, um, you know, revenue cycle sorts of things. And that is why these safety net clinics are here to make sure that we um, are able to serve people in the community who are unserved or underserved in other systems. Right. 
Um, so I'm sure your work day looks a lot different now than it had in the past. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what your job was like a day in the life before the pandemic and what it's like now. Um, well, a day in the life before the pandemic was really, uh, I kind of like to tell my kids because people are like, what does a health officer do? It's like, well, we're on the health department. What does that mean? What do you do? Right. It's like, well, I, I used to say I go to meetings, I write memos, and I solve problems. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I, I raised that bar eventually and said, not only do I solve problems, but I raise problems. You know, you mm. scan the department all the time looking for, you know, why do we do this this way? And having conversations about, have we thought about doing this differently? Why do we do this this way? Those sorts of things. And then I met with a CEO of one of our local health systems early on when I came here. And he asked me that question. And then I asked him the same question. And he said, his answer was, manage relationships. So my day was meetings, um, networking, relationships, Mm -hmm. um, paying attention to what was going on in the department, but really letting three deputy health officers that I have that work for me um, do their jobs, which they do well without really a lot of micromanaging or anything like that. But if they ran into barriers, if they had things that they wanted to talk through, they come to me. Um, If I had things that I needed to push forward through them, I went to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But they really, you know, the day-to-day management of services in the department rests with them. My job really is largely, you know, across the community, uh, working with the community, speaking publicly, um, doing, you know, we we did kick off some um, initiatives around medication-assisted treatment. Um, The opioid crisis was Mm -hmm. huge on, on my, you know, agenda and in my calendar before all of this happened. Um, because we don't have that in the department. So it took a champion to really take that on and start moving that work forward. So sometimes it's things like that. There are opportunities out there. There are strategic directions that we should be heading in and should be making sure that we are incorporating into what we do as a public health entity. And that would be a good example of that. So, you know, day in the life is just, you know, managing all of that. um, Right. Which... At times, there, you know, things happen. There was a hepatitis A outbreak. There was a right. large norovirus outbreak at the Kellogg Center. So at times it bubbles up into this, you know, more crisis mode. But those more crisis modes were all always really short term, not, not what we're seeing right now. <laughs> right. So that might bring us to what does your day look like now that we have been in crisis mode for kind of months on end? Um, my days, like this morning, I woke up at about, I don't know, just before 6am, just because that's when my, my brain starts rolling and my, you know, my, my body feels this sense of being overwhelmed and I can't go back to sleep. And so then I get up because that's how I get that sense of kind of overwhelmed and, you know, oh my gosh, the amount of stuff in front of us feeling to go away, um, just get to work. Uh, so, you know, a day in the life now is just um, keeping tabs of everything that we're doing regarding vaccination, um, our contact tracing efforts, making sure that we're on track with that, um, making adjustments to what we're doing strategically with those things as case counts go up, working with those teams. Um, I actually get into the data myself sometimes and help mm-hmm. them with some, you know, data pulling and data analysis. Um, 
And, you know, at this point in time, you know, really, uh, my days can last 14, 16, 18 hours. Uh, and I am everything from still managing all those relationships, networking with people, answering questions, assisting with plans, um, speaking, you know, obviously I do weekly um, media briefings, those sorts of things. Um, lots of public speaking, lots of inviting to be a panelist on things to explain right. what's going on with COVID, working with our national leaders, working with our state leaders, working with the governor's office as well as the state. Um, the governor has appointed me to the Public Health Advisory Council as well as the Protect Michigan Commission. So that was announced yesterday that I've been appointed to the Protect Michigan Commission. Um, so, you know, really, uh, it's been a lot of work with some people that I had not been working with before. I suddenly in the seven years that I've been in Ingham County know a whole lot of people, um, <laughs> cause it's hard to come into a community that, you know, I lived in Kalamazoo for 28 years and right. been there for a long time, knew everybody <laughs> and to come here and just be like, oh, I've got to learn all these names and all these people. So this last year has, uh, accelerated that for sure. Um, but I also will, you know, I, I do feel a sense with my team sometimes, and that's why I'll get into data, that it's like, I can't ask them for anything more. They are working so hard. So when it's, you know, looking into the state's database to find out, you know, numbers of cases associated with something or some other sort of just like, you know, data query pull, I'll just do it myself. Right. Um, I'll go out to that mass clinic myself and, you know, pick up wherever anybody uh, needs some help. I've been out at testing clinics myself, uh, basically standing at cars, helping people fill in their forms to go in and get testing and those sorts of things. Now, that's not common, but I but I will do that as well. So um, it's basically a lot of the same, except it's more completely focused on COVID. I really have little time to do anything else other than COVID. So once again, I'm very, very fortunate to have three top-notch deputy health officers that basically have their eyes not only on COVID, but on a lot of the other things that are going on in the department, because there's just so much work to do related to COVID response that it pretty much draws everything out of me. Yeah, I've interacted with your team actually on the other side as I had health insurance issues at the beginning of the pandemic and was for a month or two, month or two on the Ingham County plan. And the woman who helped me just walked me step by step, constantly responded to my emails. I felt like a valued human being and not just a number and an insurance company. And I've gone to a joint Sparrow Ingham County clinic and the staff there too was truly wonderful. So yeah, I know everyone has been working hard and it's been a team effort. Absolutely. They are an amazing team. Um, that That's one of the other things about being here in Ingham County and being the Ingham County health officer. This team is just amazing. They really are. Um, so I, I'd put them up against the best of the best in the biggest city in the country. <laughs> Um, speaking of your team, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you and the entire team have faced, um, whether it's the top one or if you need to make it top three, because I'm sure there's been more than one hurdle you've had to jump? Oh, wow. There have been so many. Um, you know, really managing large outbreaks and trying to figure out how to get those under control. We've had a few. Um you know, and they've been um, relatively notable as well. So, um, 
you know, those require some attention in terms of, you know, um, quarantines and orders and things like that. So you've seen me as a health officer issue orders, mm -hmm. um, you know, that happened in June after outbreaks, I issued some orders around bar and restaurant capacity that capped them. Um, even though the governor had them at 50%, I originally capped them at 75 or 50% and then raised it to 125. I really felt mm -hmm. like our bars and restaurants needed to kind of get a handle on incorporating these new things that they needed to do above and beyond the safety practices that we already require for them with smaller numbers of people before we grew to larger numbers of people um, and really just understanding the importance of all those things. So that was big. Um, then, of course, we had another really significant outbreak uh, in September, which required some more quarantines and, and other things at the university. Um, so that was certainly a time, but, but that also was a time and then led into a time in October where cases surged so much that from a contact tracing and case investigation perspective, we had to figure out a strategy where we just don't really have the, the capacity to call every single person and then every single person they identify as a contact. So, you know, working with the Chamber of Commerce as well as mm -hmm. my staff to say, okay, we're going to prioritize who we contact trace um, and case investigate based on, you know, vulnerability and some other concerns um, and, and basically getting out messages to the public that says we may not be in touch with you, but these are the things we need to do. We really felt at that point in time that 14-day quarantine and 10-day isolation and those sorts of things where people people can figure out those numbers themselves. Um, businesses had lots of concerns about um, reporting cases and things like that. And we were able to partner with the Chamber of Commerce and let them field those. Um, so that was a major challenge. Um, obviously, um, we did have the Rudy Giuliani hearing here, um, which presented some challenges and um, required some action that was you know, uh, a bit difficult when you're trying to basically talk about quarantine and um, the need to adopt safe practices in meetings and in sessions, as well as in offices where there are employees with the legislature. Um, and being the Ingham County Health Officer, that's the kind of thing that you face is that, you know, you're dealing with the legislature and the Supreme Court as people who are in your county, um, you know, meeting and operating and needing to follow guidelines. Um, of course, the Supreme Court, you know, just really was looking for consultation on, you know, how do we go about making sure we're spaced apart and those sorts of mm -hmm. things. The legislature has been a little bit different. And now really, um, you know, vaccination, just the logistics around vaccinating people, um, it has been huge. Um, we've got that all worked out. We can do a whole lot more vaccinating every day than we do right now. We are limited by vaccine supply. Um, this team could vaccinate many, many more people than we are vaccinating right now. But we, in three eight-hour days at a relatively easy pace, um, vaccinate over 1,000 people a day, which is all the vaccine that we get in a week. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it's been a busy year. So my impression is that most of our listeners knew there was a health department before the pandemic, but they probably never paid much attention to it unless they owned a bar or a restaurant. Um, and I could imagine 
when COVID is something in our rearview mirror, they might not think about it much again. But what would you like our listeners to know about the importance of public health? Um, putting aside the pandemic, why is public health important outside of a pandemic? Well, there are a couple of things that are unique in public health within the whole system of care um, and health in the United States. Our focus is on prevention, not Mm -hmm. caring for people after they get sick, as well as, of course, in our clinics, taking care of people after they get sick. And we also have a very um, focused, um, intentional focus on equity. Mm-hmm. Um, equity and, and justice in terms of the way that we do things and the populations and how we reach out to people to make sure that our system is not privilege-based but is based on equity. Um, equity is not equality. Um, and so as a health department, that's where we are. So we do that. Um, but I think importantly, people, I think, need to understand that you know, despite what's happening right now, which has, you know, of course, just swept the nation and swept the world and, and at times has not been exactly the most perfect response, um, you know, across the entire nation, that mm-hmm. it has been a great response here. We've done everything we can here at the local level um, because we can set our own guidance. A health officer can set guidance and issue orders and those sorts of things. But I think what people need to understand is the reason that they don't see public health is because we are constantly working every day, day in, day out, restaurant inspections, immunizations, um, working with um, uh, women during pregnancy who are at at risk of of bad outcomes in in terms of maternal mortality or infant mortality, um, and many, many other things. And that work Um, is work that keeps bad things from happening. So the reason that we are unseen is because when we do our work well, bad stuff doesn't happen. Right. Um, The next question is not my own question. I just want the listeners to know. Scott Pohl from WKAR posed it to you at your press conference last week, but I think it's worth going over here is... What public health crises are occurring in the background that maybe aren't getting the same attention they would have because we're so focused on COVID-19? Well, part of it has to do with being so focused on COVID-19, and part Mm -hmm. of it has to do with um, we take seriously um, the epidemic orders, and before that, the executive orders ourselves, as well as MIOSHA rules. So when the rule is that I cannot bring an employee into work on site if they can work remotely, that's exactly what I do. I follow that rule as well. Somebody could file a MIOSHA complaint on me if I didn't. And so many, many, many of our staff are working remotely. Um, So they're doing telehealth visits instead of some face-to-face visits. So some of these uh, maternal child health nurse visiting programs, we're not having that interaction directly, you know, on site in the home with people able to observe. Because when we go into a home, it's that one-on-one interaction with mother and, and baby and then family and then just really observing a lot of context as well. And so right. we've lost some of that. Um, we um, also do a lot of our WIC visits in the telehealth format. WIC is women, infants, and children. And the largest number of elevated blood level testing that goes on 
in the state happens through WIC clinics. And that means somebody has to be on site for a finger prick. So if we're not running WIC clinics on site, then we are doing less elevated blood lead level testing. So that is true. And you'll see those numbers in the state. Um, we also have STI clinics and an HIV clinic. Um, and with fewer hours, um, less ability to get into clinics and those sorts of things. Sometimes when our department was largely shut down, of course, never completely shut down with our, our clinical care, um, we are seeing a, um, an escalation in the number of gonorrhea cases in particular. Um, I would say that a lot of that has to do with, you know, a year's worth of having to really focus heavily on um, COVID. Right. Uh, in addition to that, as you, um, I told you earlier, my work, I've done a lot, a lot of work about around opioids, um, overdoses, preventing overdoses, integrating medication assisted treatment into our community because there's a lack of access to it. Medication assisted treatment is methadone, suboxone, Vivitrol, all of those things. And there are a few methadone clinics in town but we don't have places where doctors are prescribing Suboxone to any large extent. Um, we also know that when people are in jail and have been, um, um, have been, have had a substance use disorder, that they um, become sober for whatever period of time they're in jail and oftentimes get released from jail. And then within a couple of weeks, um, overdose, the highest risk right. in the first two weeks, overdose and die because they're used to using at a certain level and their tolerance has gone down and we lose them. So how do we create a continuity of care where in the jail we start medication-assisted treatment as well as the mental health services around it and community mental health is integrated into our Ingham County Jail? Um, so how do we get medication-assisted treatment providers qualified, get all that going, and then basically have a warm handoff into the community, have our own health centers ready and licensed providers to be able to um, prescribe Suboxone and other things and keep them in care, as well as, of course, working with our methadone treatment providers. Mm -hmm. um, if that's, you know, meth some people go on methadone and that's the best for them, some Suboxone, it depends. So, uh, and being a licensed facility to do methadone is a whole other level of hoops to jump through at the federal government level. So. Um, really just trying to create a system of that and create some awareness around that. Um, so that was a lot of work that was going on. And the bottom line is, is that, you know, people who were in recovery have not had access to the face-to-face -face meetings, the interactions, things like that. They, you know, maybe are doing Zooms and things like that, but just really not the extent of services that were available or meetings or connections. Connection is so important when it comes to substance use. I think um, the, the guy that wrote, Johan Hari wrote the book, um, um, I'll have to remember it in a, in a minute. I'll remember the name of the book in a minute. It's a really fantastic book. But he said the opposite of um, addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So social mm -hmm. connection, and there's a rat park, ex park experiment that kind of bears that out where, you know, rats are put in a cage um, with nothing to do, 
and or no other, you know, just one rat in a cage and there's a bottle of water and there's a bottle of water that has opioids in it. And right. the rat will go to the opioid over and over and over again. You put the rats in a cage together with other rats. You give them things to play with and do. And it turned out that the rats didn't continuously go to the bottle of water that had the opioids in it. So that connection was important even at the level right. of that rat park experiment. So um, that is that connection is important. So we know that a number of people fell out of recovery um, because of all of those things. And we also know that a number of people died. Um, right. Our overdose death rates are higher. And we also know that... Um, you know, not only did we have people revert to coping mechanisms that were unhealthy for them, but they're the ones that they're accustomed to, but also are being triggered by right. all of the things that are going on around us at a level that's above and beyond, you know, what, what many are experiencing. That said, we also have some people who have mental health, behavioral health issues who are exacerbated during this period of time and triggered and dealing with, you know, trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and quite honestly, we are going to be looking at a wake of mental health, behavioral health issues from people who did not necessarily even have mental health or behavioral health issues after a year of trauma. There will be people that will have PTSD over this trauma, right. um, isolation, um, isolation of their loved ones in nursing homes, not having been able to have funerals or go to funerals, not having been able to be with loved ones when they died. There's a lot of trauma embedded in all of that. And we are going to have a lot of people that are that are hurting, you know, in the uh, mental behavioral health way that is going to be huge when it comes to uh, the time when we finally get everybody vaccinated and move on. We have right. those issues right now, and we're paying attention to those issues right now, but that's going to become big in the wake of this. The book, by the way, is Chasing the Scream. Okay. Chasing the Scream. Yeah. Excellent um, book. Recommend it. So you had said in the time we're looking forward to in the future about when we're all vaccinated, uh, I wanted to check in to see how the vaccination effort through Ingham County Health Department is going. Um, I know you said the issue is the supply of vaccines, not necessarily how the clinic is being run, but is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? Um, we use every single dose of vaccine we receive every week. We just vaccinated um, our 10,000th person yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't know any given week when our vaccine will arrive, um, I think hopefully it is arriving today, this week. Um, we use the vaccine. The first week it came, it arrived on a Thursday. So clearly you can't have a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday <laughs> clinic with vaccine that arrives on Thursday. So the vaccine that arrived on Thursday last week was used, you know, that week was used the following week. So we will always look like we have a few doses that we don't have administered yet because we've, we've got to get the vaccine here in order to use it. We start a clinic on Monday. That vaccine is not here yet. So we're working with the vaccine that arrived last week. So we have, right. as of today, um, vaccinated over 10,000 people. By the end of this week, we'll have vaccinated probably another 
um, close to 2,000. And we have received to date 13,474 doses. We actually have 975 more than that, but that was allocated to us for the Michigan National Guard to use to complete vaccinations of the Michigan State Police. So those 975 mm -hmm. doses are going immediately somewhere else. So we, um, as of this week, are actually um, using some of the vaccine that we received this week to do vaccinations this week. Okay. So there really hasn't been a problem at the end of the day. There's vials sitting there that haven't been used, that hasn't been encountered. Never. Um, you know, we early on, we were, you know, vaccinating like about 300, 400 a day because mm -hmm. we were only getting 975 doses a week. And then right. they doubled that. And, and then we got second doses. So we were up to about 3000. Um, we are very careful. Um, you know, we know how many appointments we have in the day and we bring that number of vials on site, maybe even sometimes a little less. And our office is only a few miles away. And right. if we find out at the end of the day, as we're watching cars come in, it's like, oh, we're, we're going to run out. Somebody, somebody bring over three more vials or four more vials. Mm. We're constantly counting. So then those vials get out. Uh, we're watching cars at the end of the day, and it's like one more is in, one more is in. We've got a vial out. That vial's good for five days, refrigerated, uh -huh. but only for seven hours at room temperature. So it's like, okay, another car just came in. We have to get out another vial that's now at room temperature. And if it's like we, we have two vials out at room temperature and we only were able to use two of those doses, um, we have a system where a provider in town that's open 24-7 and has been working with us takes those doses, calls their 70-plus um, patients, and okay. vaccinates them on site in their 24-7 clinic. So if we ever have any doses left over at the end of the day, it goes directly to, um, I, I'll mention it, Lansing Urgent Care, who's been working with us. Um, you know, they're 24-7, you know, they're not a yes. primary medical care home, but they do have patients they're familiar with and their ages and things like that. So they are vaccinating um, our elderly as well as our, um, as some of our other vulnerable populations um, based with any doses that might be left at the end of the day. Okay. Um, in working through the pandemic, have there been moments where you questioned if you should have been on this career path or maybe you felt despair where it just felt like this is really too much right now? Have there been times when I felt like it was really too much? Yeah. Like for example, I know I've been covering the pandemic for Eli pretty much since it started and I was always okay covering it. And then I remember when you announced we had our first under 40 death and it was a 26 year old man with disabilities that really upset me in a way mm -hmm. none of covering the pandemic previously hadn't. So if you've had a moment like that. Oh, I've had many moments that make me incredibly sad. Um, we had a father and daughter die within days of each other um, early on in the pandemic. You know, first at the, in the, the early days of the pandemic, the requirement from the state was that health systems had to call the health officer within two hours of any death. So oh my, my phone would ring at any time of the night or day um, to tell me about a death. And I remember um, a call that came and I remembered a familiar last name. 
And it was a 70-some-year-old man and his 50-some-year-old daughter who had um, traveled and came Mm -hmm. back. They both end up with COVID and they both died within days of each other. Um, I've seen husband and wife, you know, basically die within days of each other and just, you know, been, you know, traumatized by how that must feel for that family. Yes, we've now, I think, got four, four, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, people who died in their 20s. Um, I get emails from people in this community right now, um, 70s, 80s, 90s, telling me about how old they are. Um, You know, it might be a 70-year-old or a 75-year-old who has a 95-year-old parent and they're both trying to get vaccinated. And we've got this, you know, we're doing the best we can and we only have so many appointments and I would love to just be able to give every single one of them a vaccine. And it breaks my heart to read these emails and know that these people are still waiting. Um, But we're trying to get to them as best we can and keep advocating for more vaccine. My big moments really, you know, I've hit the wall a few times, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not any particular thing, but a culmination of things. So I think, um, think I've probably had about three mini meltdowns in the year where it's just like you know you just feel like you're just done and everything in you is just like falling apart and it's like you know and then somehow or another it all pulls back together and I keep on going the next day but um, right before the anniversary of my father's death um, in June I was feeling particularly just I mean obviously there was a lot going on in June And I just, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just breaking down. I just had this, you know, breakdown weekend. And part of it I realized was, I didn't even know it, but in the back of my head, I knew that I was coming up on the first anniversary of my father's death. Right. And that was traumatic for me because my father was healthy. Um, He was 83, but he was healthy. Mm -hmm. He'd just had a physical. There was nothing wrong with him. He'd never been in the hospital. He had no... um, chronic health conditions. He was still sharp as a tack. He was about to get in his car and drive from South Texas to Michigan. I thought he was on his way and was kind of just leaving him alone as he made his way up here. And then suddenly it was like, wait a minute, I haven't heard from my dad in a couple of days. You know, tried to reach out to him, didn't get an answer. Tried to reach out to him, didn't get an answer. Went into just a sheer panic. Um, Finally hacked into his iCloud and found his phone's not active, but his iPad, he was very tech savvy. Mm -hmm. He had a computer and a laptop and an iPad and a Kindle and an iWatch and an iPhone. (laughs) That's just how smart that man was um, still at 83. And I found that his iPad was still at his home in Texas and I knew he would not have left without it. My hope Mm -hmm. was that I was going to find him somewhere on the road in between here and Texas and I was going to be able to calm down. And instead, I had to call the police down there and ask them to go to his house. My children were both on the phone with me. And I said, I'm sorry. I may be overreacting. I'm sure everything's just fine. I'm sorry, you know, because I'm panicking with them. It's like, just stay on the phone with me here right. while I wait for the police to call. The police called back and said, you know, I'm sorry, ma'am, but, you know, your, your father's dead. And he had died within hours of when he texted me to tell me that he would be, it was a Friday, that he would be right. leaving on Sunday. And so five days after my father died, I finally sent somebody to look for him. Um, And that hurt. That hurt a lot. And I didn't expect that my father was about to die. I thought my father was in a car 
on his way up here about to spend another summer with now his two great granddaughters. Right. And all of that. And him dying so suddenly like that. And all of the things that happened around that were just incredibly traumatic. And so in the back of my mind, that was all happening and I wasn't thinking about it, but it just all clashed together and I just kind of came apart. Understandably so. Well, thank you for sharing that with our listeners, Linda, but maybe we'll try to end on a high point. So I'll ask you this (laughs) final question about, can you share a moment where you felt really proud of your team or the Ingham County community of maybe we pulled together in a way you didn't expect for the better during the pandemic? Oh, there have been a few. I mean, uh, the outreach from the Lansing or the greater, the greater Lansing chamber of commerce Mm -hmm. to help us in any way we needed to, um, to start that relaunch greater Lansing task force to help our businesses really, um, you know, create signages and adhere to guidance, knowing that if they did that, that was how they were going to stay open. Um, many, many people around the community stepping up to help that. And then really, I will have to say this vaccination effort where, um, Michigan state university is just, you know, we are at a facility of theirs. Mm -hmm. They are wrapping around us, um, facility support, security support, emergency response support that we we just we just know they'll be there. We don't have to plan that or seek volunteers for that. The city right. of Lansing um, helping us with some of their um, parking folks uh, and other folks to basically help us with traffic control. Um, partners in the community, our health systems as well as Lansing urgent care being on site with us and just saying we're here because this is the right thing to do for our community. And really, you know, um, we, we are in lanes out there, right? So right. we have to basically staff the whole thing and coordinate the whole thing. But when we have a practice like that, who basically says, we will staff our lanes, we will coordinate our staffing and making sure that everybody's there and all of that every day, then there's part of that operation that we don't have to worry about at all. Right. Um, and then my team, who have just been the mastermind of planning behind all of it, Um, when they said that they were going where they were going, I was like, what are you talking about? And I went out there and I still was like, how is this going to work? And it's just, it's, it's beautiful. And, um, I've got a team of people that one are doing the planning that are just the most amazing people in the, in the backgrounds. I've got people that are, um, you know, immunizations expert that are, you know, front and center in the foreground doing that and bringing in Mm -hmm. volunteers and all of that and getting them trained. And then I have these partners that are, one, taking on part of that for us, as well as wrapping all of that other stuff we need around us so that we can move forward in the way that we've been able to move forward. We wouldn't have been able to do as much as well as fast without them. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Lindsay. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.